At night, we heard the first gunshot. My father said we should all run. My siblings and I began to run for our lives. The next day, we went back home. Everywhere was silent. When we approached our house, I could see three bodies on the ground. I recognized my father by his clothing. I dropped to my knees by his side and prayed. I ran into the house to see if my grandmother was still alive. She was crying bitterly. They asked him if he was a Muslim or a Christian. They killed him when he replied Christian, she said. A few weeks after the attack, Boko Haram sent a list to our village, a list of people they were coming to kill. My family and I had to flee our home. Life hasn't been easy for us. After the attack, I was filled with anger and hatred, angry at God, and I had decided to avenge my father's death. Before coming here, I had decided to never forgive. It was all I could think about. But now, I have found peace, encouragement and hope. I have learned to forgive and to leave everything at the feet of Jesus. And if I am to die like my father, so be it. a pretty intense one, honestly, in a lot of ways. My name is Dan. I'm the worship minister here. I have the pleasure of speaking with you this morning. And unfortunately, although Ayuba's story seems a little rare to us, it's a lot more common than we'd like to believe. In fact, around the world, 360 million Christians have been persecuted for their faith in 2023. That's one in seven Christians have been persecuted for claiming the name of Jesus. In fact, just this past year, there has been 2,110 churches attacked, burned, services disrupted, attacked because they were God's house of worship. 4,542 Christians were imprisoned. Some of those Christians may not actually walk out of that prison. They may spend the rest of their lives there. Many will spend decades for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus. And 5,621 people were murdered for their faith in Jesus last year alone, including Ayuba's father. It's overwhelming when we think about these numbers, when we try to have a concept for what persecution is in America, because we just don't experience it that same way. In fact, I remember the first time I even had any understanding of persecution or like actually confronted it at all was back in the 90s when I was growing up. Does anyone remember the Left Behind series? 
Okay, a few, a few people do. Okay, so you'll understand. But for those of you who don't remember the Left Behind series, it was this big book series in the Christian church, and it turned into these movies. And it was about what happens if Christians get lost, you know, like behind after the rapture, and how would they endure persecution? And I just remember as like a high school student, every once in a while when I'd wake up on a Saturday, my parents were gone, and I didn't know where they were. I'd be like, wait, was it the rapture that just happened? Was I left behind? Am I going to have to endure persecution? You know, this was my concept of it, my engagement with it. Um, It's a little embarrassing to admit right now, but uh, it's just those things that would pop through your head. So before we go any further into what is definitely a very serious subject and very weighty, let's just give ourselves some definitions for these terms that we're talking about today. So I want to talk about three different things. I want to talk about the concept of hardship, discrimination, and persecution real fast. So a hardship, say I was walking around the halls of my high school as, you know, a teenage boy, and I had a Bible, and someone were to make fun of me as a Bible thumper. That would be something I would consider hardship, and it would be a hardship because I don't know if they're making fun of me truly because they hate the Bible and everything it stands for in Christianity, or if they actually just have something against me. They're jealous of something I did, or the way I did something may have embarrassed them or made them ashamed. So, They're making fun of me, but I don't know really why. So I'm going to call that a hardship. Discrimination is if you were to imagine going to your neighborhood grocery store to buy food for your family. And before you're able to walk in, the grocer were to stop you and say, hey, I heard that you're a Christian. And then you were to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And you would say, well, you can't buy your groceries here. You have to leave and go somewhere else. And persecution would be, A couple people hearing that you said you were a Christian, and as you walk out, they grab you and take you around the back and beat you bloody or dead. This is what we're talking about here this morning. And honestly, because it's so distant from us here in the church, it's hard for us to really understand. We don't see what persecution is normally, and it's so far away that it just seems just unconnected with our lives at all. But we also don't know what persecution can bring for us as a church either. I was talking with a missionary partner this past week, and they live in a country, we have several, that are very hostile to the gospel. They experience persecution on a regular basis and are under threat of losing their life for Jesus. And as they were talking on the video, and you'll see it later, not if you're online, but you'll see it later, um, it's not today, but later on in the year anyway, but... Um, You'll see what they said, and it blew me away. They said, pray for us, but don't pray that the persecution be taken from us. Don't pray that it be taken from us. And I was like, wait a second, this is just unbelievable. And he said, don't pray it's taken from us because persecution has brought us so close to Jesus. It has grown us with our Savior so powerfully. Pray for our strength to endure persecution. So as an American church, we need to aspire to have a faith that is able to endure persecution and be victorious and not crumble under it. And that's possible. We can have a persecutable faith as believers. So why are we bringing all this up today? Well, we're in the Sent series. We're in Acts 12. And Acts 12 is talking about persecution. It centers around one of the first instances of it in the church. 
and we're going to dive into that in a second here. But I just want to ask for you to pray with me as we open up God's word and continue on. Jesus, we're so grateful for this chance to look at your word. I pray that you would guide our hearts and minds as we read it, as we think about it, as I speak about it, God. Allow the things that are from me to be quickly forgotten, but allow your truth to sink down deep and to take root in us, God, and to grow and transform us into the image of your son. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Acts as we continue on in this series called Sent. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration, and then he imprisoned him placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. So what do we see at the beginning of chapter 12? Well, persecution, it's as old as the church. It's happening from the inception of the church to now. It's nothing new. And we see that this is a really critical time for persecution in the church. I mean, one of the apostles has been killed. And now Peter, the rock that Jesus talked about building his church on, is looking like he's going to be killed as well. So how does the truly, I'm sorry, truly, how does the early church respond to this? Anybody can tell me. Ah? Prayer. They respond in prayer. And I think prayer can kind of get a bad rap in our contemporary modern culture, can't it? We kind of leave prayer for when we can't think of anything else to do, or when we've tried everything else and it's not working. Or sometimes, if we've experienced some pretty hard things from people, we might even think about prayer as what people do for us when they don't want to actually do anything for us. But prayer is far from that. The truth is, is much more encouraging about what prayer actually is. You see, prayer is actually about building intimacy with God. It's not about sending up some uh, wish list to a cosmic bellboy so he can bring us what we want. It's about growing closer to Jesus. And what's so cool about that is that when we come closer to Jesus— He becomes bigger in our lives. And those problems that we're facing, whether they're persecution or anything else, they become smaller. And we know this is true because of some truths that God's laid out in his scripture for us. One of those things, and when you put them together, it's really awesome how it works. One of those things is that God is love. All right, so not only does he love perfectly, but he is in some way in his nature love. And then also the fact that perfect love drives out fear. So you see, when we draw close to God who is love, then his love, which is the most perfect love we will ever find, drives out the fear in our lives. So what was the church doing in response to persecution? Exactly what they should be doing. They were drawing close to God. They were reaching out to him because they were afraid and with good reason. So they prayed earnestly And they tried to allow God to become bigger than the persecution that they were facing. 
and to drive out the fear that they had. And in that prayer, things changed. Let's go on in verse 6 and read on and see how. The night Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly, there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off of his wrists. Then the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel. But all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street. And then the angel suddenly left him. Peter came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda, I love Rhoda, came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed, and instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued to knock. And when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said. And he went to another place. So what was the result of the church's prayers when they were confronting persecution. Things changed, didn't they? Now, sometimes God changes our situations when we pray. Sometimes he changes us. But we can be confident that when we go to God in prayer, he is going to change things in us or in our situation. And for Peter, prayer resulted in a pretty amazing miracle. I love how the angel talked. I mean, it's just amazing to me. If you've ever been woken up, because if you like to sleep like I do, you might have been woken up and ordered around to someplace. I don't know. Sorry, Leanne. Um, but it just reminds me of this person who's just like drowsy and just being pushed through all this and the descriptions of everything happening. And then Rhoda, my goodness, so excited to hear Peter, Peter leaves him at the door. And now she's in there talking with the disciples and you can see their state of mind. They don't believe Peter's going to get out of prison. They're not expecting that to happen. They're praying for him to have strength to endure and to give his life for Christ. They're praying for them to have a future as a church. But when God acts, he acts in ways that blow out our expectations. And we can have confidence in that. So we see the church banded together under persecution and drew close to God in this prayer. I mean, they were suffering. They were worried about what was happening. The James had just died, and Peter's going to go that way himself. And so they rallied together and kept their eyes on Jesus instead of Herod. You know, it reminds me of another story with Peter. It might remind you, too. When Jesus came out to him on the boat, and the storms were raging, and he said, Lord, if it's you, ask me to come out on the boat, too. Out of the boat and on the water. 
And Jesus did. And Peter did. Peter walked on water, y'all. And he did that because he had his eyes on Jesus. And the minute that he took his eyes off of Jesus, he started to see the waves and the storm and everything that was just around him. He started to sink into the water and he cried out for help and Jesus was right there. You see, when we're in the church, we have people around us who can help us have our eyes on Jesus, who can encourage us of what we know to be true in our Savior. And that's exactly what the church is supposed to do. Paul knows this. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 10 through 11, he says, Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. Who are you building up in Christ? Who's building you up in Christ? This is an important question, guys. This is something that we should have a a clear answer to. We need people in our lives who are going to point us to Jesus and make sure that when life comes in, whether it's persecution or trials, they're going to keep our eyes on him. We just watched an awesome impact with an incredible testimony from the Baker family that Eric went ahead and brought for us this morning about my journey. And whether you have a family or whether you're single, married, widowed, without kids, with kids, my journey is an awesome place for you to step into Christian community. And that is 100% what God's calling us here to in Scripture. It's vital. It's what we need. And if you don't have it, you need to go back and sign up. Because we have to have those people around us who are pointing us to Jesus. So I want to encourage you to do that as we continue on in verse 18. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. Uh, Happened to Peter, excuse me. So they're searching for Peter. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. Afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so he sent them. Uh, so they sent, excuse me, a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. Now Herod was the king of Judea; he was established by Roman rule, but he was in that region of Israel. He was in the place of God's people, and so he was king over God's people. Maybe not by God's hand but by man's hand, but nonetheless, when people saw him, that's where they identified him. So it continues on. The delegates won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant. An appointment with Herod was uh, granted, and when the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes and sat on his throne and made a speech to them. The people gave him a great ovation, shouting, it's the voice of a god, not of a man the God of the region of the people of Israel. Instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their missionary or excuse me, their mission to Jerusalem, they returned, taking John Mark with them. 
So I have a quick question for you if you've been paying attention, which I feel like you have. Thank you for doing that. Whose kingdom endured? When we look at the beginning in Acts 12, it kind of looks like Herod's kingdom is looking pretty good, doesn't it? He's got the kingdom of God on the ropes. He's killed one apostle. He's taken the rock of the church, and he's going to do the same. But when we look at the end, we see that Jesus' kingdom has endured and is standing victorious. In fact, James, when he died, entered into the kingdom that he was building in a way that he never had before. But when King Herod died, his kingdom ended, and it was gone. I love how it says the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. You know, this is why they ban and burn Bibles in countries where they are oppressed, or Christianity is oppressed, because God's word is powerful and it changes lives. The world always opposes God's truth because God's truth pulls down man's temporary kingdom and it brings us up into God's eternal kingdom. And so when we see this, we see that the church is living into the reality of God's eternal kingdom because they've gained an eternal perspective from the truth of God's word, and it continues to endure. You know, we have a lot more to lose in this life than simply our lives. Jesus tells us that in Mark 8, 36 through 38. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in glory of his Father with the holy angels. No one lives forever, guys. I don't like to think about it. It's not comfortable. It's not good coffee talk. (laughs) But we don't exit this life alive. All of us are going to die one day. The real question is not if we're going to die, but whose kingdom will we have been building? Will we have been building our kingdom? Or will we have been building God's kingdom? Are we building something that we want for ourselves? Are we building what God wants for us with the time that he's given us? As Christians, all of us believe that we are supposed to be baptized into faith because, well, God calls us to, but also there's a powerful symbol in it as well. You see, when we go under the water, we're saying that our old life is dead. And when we come up out of it, we're saying that we're coming alive to Jesus. But it's so easy to wake up the next day and forget that that old man is dead and simply not choose to live as God wants us to live. That's why Jesus tells us in Luke 9, 23, if any of you wants to follow me, you must give up your own way and take up your cross daily and follow me. You know, when I say cross to you, we think of a lot of things about crosses, maybe hope, maybe religion, maybe Jesus, but it wasn't lost on Jesus's audience. When he said cross, they were thinking of a way to die. Not just any way to die, not a quick way to die, but a torturous one. And so when Jesus says, pick up your cross daily, 
He means, are you ready to go ahead and die to yourself daily? To die to your old way of doing things and follow me and live in my life. That's what we're called to. Are we ready to endure suffering, loss, even death for Christ? How do we become like Peter? How do we become ready to do that? It's a pretty distant thing for all of us, but it's important. I want to encourage us because Peter wasn't always ready for that either. If we remember, Peter was the one who told Jesus when he was talking about the crucifixion, how he would have to die. He was like, oh, no, no, Lord, you're not going to do that. You're going you're gonna to live around. You're going to rule. You're going to pull us away from the Romans. We've we got this all planned. And Jesus shut him down in no uncertain terms, probably the strongest way he could have. He told him, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter was putting his kingdom on God. He was superimposing it and saying, no, you're wrong, Lord. That's not the way that our lives should go. It's the way I think it should go. And then the second time when Peter really messed up about that was when Jesus was taken into the courts, arrested by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and being put on trial. And then Peter was recognized. And was like, wait, aren't you his disciple? Aren't you the guy who's with Jesus? Aren't you that guy? And he's like, no, 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 I'm not. And the rooster crows. So what happened? What flipped that switch in Peter's life that turned him from that guy who wasn't willing to lose his life for Jesus to Acts 12, where he's willing to give it all for Jesus? Well, Acts 3 happened. The Holy Spirit came and had been living inside Peter. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. He's our helper. He's the one who enables us to live out God's truth. He's the one who shows it to us. In fact, Jesus tells us something really cool that the Holy Spirit does in our lives in Luke 12, 11 through 12. He says, And when you are brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, Don't worry about how to defend yourselves or what to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. Yeah, there's grace for us in this. There's room for us to grow. And the reason why? Our hope isn't in ourselves. Our hope is in God to endure persecution victoriously. If we're going to build a persecutable faith, it's not because we were able to pull ourselves up from our bootstraps. It's because we allowed God to build it in us. So how do we make that happen? How do we give God the space to do that? Well, I think Acts 12 sets a clear example for us. We hold fast to God's presence in prayer because we need to have him become greater than the persecution we face. We encourage and build each other up in Christian community because we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and not on Herod. And we need to know and live out God's word so we don't get stuck thinking about this temporary kingdom here on earth, but we have an eternal perspective that looks at God's kingdom. When we do these three things, God changes us into people who can hear and respond boldly to the Holy Spirit's leading in times of persecution. And the time for that, it's it's not after persecution comes. 
Because it wasn't a switch that Peter flipped. This isn't a process that you can do. The time for that is now, believer. The time for this is today. Peter needed to have the Holy Spirit reveal God's truth to him in Scripture. He needed to be built up and encouraged in the body of Christ. And he needed to draw closer with Jesus on Jesus' terms, not superimposing his kingdom on God's. And I want you to hear this. What we're building as we hold fast to God's presence in prayer, encourage and build up each other in Christian community, and know and live out God's word They aren't skills that we have in our arsenal as believers. Not things that we can do. But it's an openness that allows God to build his kingdom in and through our lives. When we do these things, when we hold fast to God's presence in prayer, encourage and build each other up in Christian community, and know and live out God's word. When we allow God's kingdom to reign in our hearts and lives, we'll live in a world with a faith that outlasts any persecution it can throw at us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we just want to say a prayer for the persecuted church in this world. Those living under discrimination and persecution, God, would you strengthen them? Would you be close to them? Would you encourage them together? And in some small way, show them how we love them and are praying for them and are holding fast to you together. And God, would you bring the Bible into their hands so they can be encouraged by your truth and know that the internal kingdom that they're part of is sound and secure. God, I pray for us as believers in this comfortable time, although we see discrimination rising around us, In moments, God, we still live very comfortably compared to many in the world. That we wouldn't allow our comfort to keep us from drawing close to you, God. From living into what you have for us in your kingdom. That we would spend our lives building your kingdom and an openness that's allowing you, God, to set the bricks in our hearts. Lord, I pray if there's anything in us that is still held on to that old way of living that hasn't allowed ourselves to put, our, to put that old life to death and live to you, Jesus, that we'd be ready to give that up and allow you to do what only you can do, which is bring about the image of Christ in us. God, we all need that to happen, and we all have room to grow in that place. So I pray you would encourage all of us as we take this time this morning to respond to you. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. I want to encourage you that the altars are open.